I next met with Dr. Denise Yardley from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, to discuss breast cancer. To begin, Dr. Yardley focused on an important development in the field, the very recent report from a critical clinical trial in women with HER2-positive breast cancer, the so-called affinity study that was presented at the ASCO meeting in June, demonstrating a modest improvement in outcome when the anti-HER2 antibody pertuzumab was added to adjuvant chemotherapy in trastuzumab. So that trial that really addressed the addition of adding pertuzumab in an adjuvant setting that we've been waiting for that data demonstrated, I think, maybe to some of us a bit less of an improvement that we were banking on. And the difference that we saw now looking out at the five-year mark was a smaller magnitude than I think I would have estimated, and it was just about 2%. And so now looking at that data and walking into the office and looking at patients now, trying to figure out how to make recommendations and incorporate that while the FDA looks at that, I think has become challenging. I think the other take home from the affinity is I feel much more comfortable in the setting for patients that are unable to tolerate the pertuzumab. I think we can say that, you know, HER2 therapy with tretuzumab and chemotherapy is very effective, and pertuzumab adding it as a dual HER2 strategy offered a small incremental increase in a very high-risk patient population, but those that were unable to tolerate it from largely the GI toxicities, I think I feel comfortable with stopping that therapy in those patients too. I guess technically the trial met its endpoint of being a positive trial. And then you're pointing out the fact that maybe the magnitude of that positivity was not as much as people would have hoped. At this point, can you kind of describe a situation where you might want to use, assuming you could use it from a regulatory point of view, pertuzumab as adjuvant therapy? I think in the adjuvant setting, I think, you know, I'd be likely limiting this now to the node positive patients and certainly the hormone receptor negative. Those that I feel are high risk tumors, young patients with a lot of tumor burden. But I think I'd feel comfortable in these node negative stage one tumors of not moving forward with pertuzumab, particularly if those patients are not tolerant of it, because I can't really justify that they're going to experience a benefit. So you mentioned before the issue of diarrhea with pertuzumab. Can you talk a little bit more about what you say to patients to prepare them when you tell them to call you and do you use any kind of preemptive medications? So I do talk to patients about the side effect of diarrhea, and I tell them right out front to go ahead and have, typically we start with Imodium available at home and to call immediately if they're not getting control with that. And then we escalate to adding Lamotil. I don't preemptively have all patients take something beforehand. I'd rather see that those patients require that and have that commitment. And so I usually do a lot of education, and our staff does a lot of education so that patients are prepared if they have the onset of diarrhea. I think the other thing, too, is to look at, and we're clear with patients, is to be sure we're not missing other causes of diarrhea that may evolve. And so for a lot of patients, stress is a big indicator with irritable bowel, and that's easily brought on by initiating chemotherapy and a diagnosis of breast cancer. So it's always a challenge to try to work through for some patients who experience diarrhea, and it seems refractory, I think, 
think it's always difficult to know exactly how patients are taking the anti-motility agents at home too, is that I'll hold a cycle of pertuzumab or two. And it's quite interesting. Sometimes that does resolve it, but more often than not, it doesn't. And we look to other causes, whether it's the chemotherapy We've seen that with the chemotherapy, whether they have an underlying GI issue. Sometimes I do send them if I find that even holding pertuzumab, I'm not getting on top of it for the gastroenterology for a consultation as well. What about dermatologic issues, rash with pertuzumab? So the rash with pertuzumab, I think, has been much less frequent, but there are a small percentage. I think I've only had probably one or two patients that ever was significantly bothersome. We do try, you know, steroids for a lot of these patients up front, either the Medrol dose pack and some emollients on their skin. But, you know, I think I've only had to discontinue that really in one or two patients. It has not been a big issue. You mentioned the so-called, I guess it's a TP regimen with paclitaxel and trastuzumab that you often use in patients with lower risk tumors. Can you talk about what you say to patients to kind of prepare them for that? So I talk to patients with the lower risk tumors, how we're starting to tailor our regimens. And I think a lot of the patients have heard of anthracyclines, doxorubicin, the red devil, and they clearly do not want that chemotherapy agent. And so it's been nice now to be able to talk to patients with data about avoiding that portion of the previous regimen and just, you know, starting with the taxane backbone and trastuzumab. I think the data, and there was an overall survival poster at ASCO as well that now is carrying out the three-year data out to the five-year point with 95% overall survival and, you know, 93% with just the 12 weeks of paclitaxel and the one year of trituzumab. And so I offer that to a lot of the patients. You know, I really use the trial group that was a three centimeter or less node negative population. The majority of the patients were less than two centimeters, but I do offer that almost as my standard for patients at this point so that they have 12 weeks of therapy. Most patients, you know, embrace that quite readily and then just continue on with the trituzumab to complete one year. We talked about adjuvant therapy for people with HER2 positive disease. I also wanted to ask you, I guess you could call it post-adjuvant therapy. There's been a trial presented that looked at the tyrosine kinase inhibitor and oral pill I guess the same class as lapatinib, but this one is called neratinib, and the drug was just approved by the FDA. Can you talk a little bit about what neratinib is and what the research is behind it and how you think people might use the drug in practice? Neratinib is a molecule that's an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor of the HER2 molecule, very similar as lapatinib, and it acts in somewhat similar side effect fashion in terms of intracellularly. It's able to add in a different way, reducing the risk of a HER2-positive breast cancer. The trial that was presented followed patients who had completed their adjuvant therapy with trituzumab, and then with within that year could go on to a year of neratinib, which is oral therapy. And that trial was a positive trial for the HER2-positive patients. Interestingly, we look at that data, again, small numbers. It's about 2% for patients improving their disease-free survival. And again, if trying to tailor the group that was going to have the most benefit, 
I think the hard part is, again, it's a small percentage of gain, but in a high-risk population that could tolerate the agent, I think that would be a good recommendation or for consideration. I think the GI toxicity, though, for neratinib may really provide a big caveat into those who are going to tolerate it. They really... Those patients are going to mandate a requirement for at least trying out and starting prophylactically with Lamotil in that group. They also added vedesonide that seemed to really cut that grade 3 diarrhea, which was about 40% down to about 15% with both Lamotil and the steroids. And so that's a lot of medicine, you know, oral therapy to take a year after you're completing your tratuzumab. And I find it challenging, and this is a group of patients who are cured that are back into their full workforce, family life. And so having a GI toxicity like diarrhea that's so frequent, you know, grade three is greater than seven bowel movements, makes it quite difficult to know the compliance these patients are going to be able to stay with a year. But I do think in a high-risk ERP or a positive patient population, it's something to consider. I guess it is important to realize that even after you get adjuvant therapy or neoadjuvant therapy, there's still many patients, particularly the patients with node-positive tumors, they still have a significant risk to relapse. I want to ask you also one more question about HER2-positive disease that we got into in the ONS symposium, which is the approach to sequencing therapies in metastatic disease. And right now, I guess the two most common approaches in the first and second line setting with HER2-positive metastatic disease has been either chemotherapy with trastuzumab and pertuzumab, taxane usually a so-called Cleopatra approach. And then the other main approach has been TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate. Can you talk a little bit about how you decide sort of which one to use first and how does time since the initial diagnosis factor into your decision? So I think, you know, my go-to first-line regimen for a patient that has recurred with metastatic disease or even a de novo stage four is using a pertuzumab, taxane, tretuzumab regimen. I think largely from its FDA approval, you know, they're very clear in the metastatic setting that you can't have had a prior HER2 therapy or tretuzumab. And so because of that, I want to give those patients that benefit. I think the other part is the clay Cleopatra trial showed a survival advantage. And so it's really hard for me to get around a trial that demonstrated pertuzumab in the first-line metastatic setting in combination with a taxane and tratuzumab showing such a dramatic improvement in their PFS of up to 18 months, but that showed an overall survival advantage for those patients that went out to 50 months. And so That still remains my go-to therapy for patients, and I talk to patients about it. We've done lots of work with TDM and treated actually the first patient ever with TDM. And so, you know, I truly have a passion for that drug and the side effect profile. We look at the Marianne trial that showed TDM was not superior, but I think if you look at toxicity and you look at all the other parameters of outcome, it was definitely a very efficacious agent for patients. But because of that benefit for pertuzumab in terms of that survival advantage, I still sequence TDM as a second-line regimen for patients. What kinds of problems have been seen with TDM1? Two that I've heard about are lower platelet count and also liver function problems. 
So we do monitor that, and it tends to be a mild thrombocytopenia that develops with TDM and develops typically early on, although I have seen some patients who, because of the small amount of toxicity, are able to stay on TDM for years, and we see some thrombocytopenia developing on the tail end too. But it's easily reversible. It doesn't really result in any of the grade four issues or grade three or transfusions very minimally. It's more a paper toxicity that we can measure. And that goes for the transaminases as well. We do see transaminitis. I just had a patient last week in the clinic. She was actually on a trial. This was her last cycle of TDM with pertuzumab. She'd had a fabulous response And so we told her that her transaminases had bumped just a little bit, didn't require dose modification or anything per the guidelines. But the patient was a little concerned, particularly since she knew herself she'd had a fabulous response. And so I told her that, you know, this was expected therapy. This was her last cycle. We expect that to resolve to normal. Wasn't anything that resulted in issues in metabolizing the chemotherapy portion. But it is something that we look for. We look at the liver functions before we dose patients who've had a trend or have any evidence that the transaminases have bumped a little bit. So let's move on now and talk about ER positive, HER2 negative disease, I guess really the most common sort of receptor subtype that you see in breast cancer. And I want to talk a little bit about the issue of management of the patient with metastatic disease, because here we've seen some real changes in practice with the introduction of the so-called CDK4-6 inhibitors. Palbociclib initially approved, now ribociclib, and now we've heard about another one, abemociclib, that's not approved yet, but maybe going to be. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the way we approach hormone therapy and metastatic disease and prior to CDK4-6, and then what CDK4-6 inhibitors do and how we're using them? The CDK4-6 agents have, I think, dramatically improved the disease-free interval or progression-free interval for patients starting out with metastatic disease now with a combination of a CDK4-6 inhibitor with an endocrine therapy and really doubling the amount of time that their disease stayed control, I think approaching 24 and 25 months before they needed a change in therapy. And so it really has changed, I think, the aspect of those patients relapsing, not only from the recommendations, but I think the monitoring. I think that's really changed things. And while still patients may reach out and know patients in the adjuvant setting who are on endocrine therapy, when in the metastatic setting, they're getting this recommendation of a CDK4-6, which has become the standard first line now in ER positive, it does make their follow-up a little bit more cumbersome and making patients aware of the side effect profiles. And so we've gotten quite used to the endocrine therapy, monotherapies, both from adjuvant and previous metastatic practice to now adding a need to monitor their labs, looking for the neutropenia rate, which is grade three, fours, you know, upwards of 50 and 60%. Having those patients come back two weeks after we start to monitor their blood counts and looking at now adding fatigue, there's some GI toxicity. So it has made endocrine therapy a little more challenging for those patients in the metastatic setting, challenging for the physician and the nursing staff to monitor those patients and now adjust the CDK4-6 inhibitors as is needed for neutropenia. 
and to really educate the patients on that. So I think, you know, we used to just give them a monotherapy and see them back in a month or two. I think now we're bringing them back in two weeks or four weeks to recheck their blood counts. And so, but the benefit for all of that has been extending the ability for those patients to stay on endocrine therapy and further from chemotherapy. At this point, with these two agents, palbociclib and ribociclib approved, how do you choose between them? So that's a challenging question as ribociclib just got its approval in March. I think what we look at is what's going to be most efficient for our patients and help our patients with compliance. I do think ribociclib has a very nice patient starter pack in terms of how they're packaging the compound. So for palbociclib, we have different pill strengths. For ribociclib, it's the same strength. It's just a change in the number of pills. So, you know, when I look at patients, we look at co-pays when you're changing actually a dose for palbociclib. For some healthcare plans, that's another co-pay change. Whereas in the ribociclib, it's a 200 milligram tablet. You take three of them, two of them, or one of them, and they're packaged very conveniently in a blister package. Also comes with the endocrine therapy. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's what's more convenient for the patient in terms of it's going to increase their compliance, their ability to pay for changes in the dosing as needed. Now, I will say for ribociclib, there's additional monitoring that distinguishes itself from palbociclib as well. And so we do want to be aware, although there were no issues in the Mona Lisa trial with QTC, the recommendation is for monitoring a baseline EKG with the QTC and then at two weeks and four weeks. And so I think there are various programs now where the support can come to the patient. The patient doesn't even have to come to the clinic to help look at both the lab effects and looking at the EKG. So I think, you know, we always look at cost and how are these going to come out. And at the end of the day, I think it's always what's going to work best for the patient and help the patient be the most compliant with the recommendations. You mentioned that abemaciclib is a little bit different, maybe less neutropenia, more diarrhea. The dosing is different. The schedule is different. But also, the other thing that's kind of interesting about abemaciclib as opposed to the other two is responses have been seen with just that agent alone. Can you talk about that and kind of what it means to you? So, yeah, so the original trial with abemaciclib as monotherapy from the Monarch 1 trial actually showed a response of about 19 to 20% just as a single agent. These were in pretreated metastatic breast cancer patients that had to have had two or more chemotherapies. And so not really in a hormone receptor positive population that you would expect a lot of benefit from a single agent targeted agent. So you mentioned the other targeted agent that's been combined with hormonotherapy, which is Everolimus. Can you talk about what Everolimus is and what kind of issues come up with that in terms of toxicity and when you use it? So Everolimus is another targeted agent approved for metastatic breast cancer patients in combination with exemustane in patients who have failed an aromatase inhibitor. And so a small percentage were on the Bolero 2 trial that came with a less than 12 months from completing adjuvant AI or progressed while on. But then the majority of the patient had had first line, as was the standard at the time, pre-CDK4-6, single 
agent, aromatase inhibitor, and upon progression went on to receive eczema, stain, and everolimus. And it showed there almost, again, a doubling of the progression-free survival with the addition of everolimus. Now, it has a whole different toxicity profile, and I think that's what I always try to tell patients, that despite the fact they're oral therapies, because I think patients equate chemo as toxicity and oral therapies as not. I think, you know, what we've learned is all of these targeted agents with endocrine therapy do require monitoring and to be very vigilant about it. So the first is that adding the everolimus did result in the addition of stomatitis in patients. And so that was something new for patients on endocrine therapy that just is not a side effect of endocrine therapy. And that started early on within the first cycle or two now, that's been greatly ameliorated with the data of the dexamethasone oral preventive mouth solution from the SWISH study that really showed you could decrease the incidence of stomatitis by prophylactically swishing the dexamethasone solution in the mouth. So that's been quite helpful. I think the second issue with Everolimus, while it's decreased and on about the 8% level of grade 3, is pneumonitis. Again, an uncharacteristic characteristic side effect for breast cancer patients from other chemotherapeutic agents that they may have been exposed to. And for breast cancer clinicians, that's just not been a big side effect from any of the drugs to date. So this insidious cough, shortness of breath, you know, has to have a little bit more vigilance to think about it. Chest x-ray is required to help diagnose it. Chest CT can do it. So again, that one's a little bit more challenging to diagnose. So I want to shift our discussion to another really exciting area. You know, when we were at ONS, we also, in addition to doing breast cancer, we did seven symposia, but one of them was on ovarian cancer. And there, the big story is clearly PARP inhibitors. Three now approved to treat ovarian cancer. I mean, almost every patient with recurrent ovarian cancer now is being considered to receive a PARP inhibitor. And at the time of the ONS meeting, we saw that there was going to be a presentation at the ASCO meeting in June looking at PARP inhibitors in patients with BRCA germline mutations and breast cancer. And we were saying at ONS that, you know, depending upon what it showed, this could really change the management of metastatic HER2-negative disease, both ER-positive and ER-negative, triple-negative Can you talk a little bit about what, in your vision, PARP inhibitors actually are, what bracket germline mutations are, what this new data is, and what you think it all means for clinical practice now? So I think, you know, we've come a long way with being able to identify these BRCA patients now. I think, you know, all of us from med school on learned, you know, the importance of family history, and now we have an ability to do something with that history other than label this as a high-risk family. And so with the discovery of the BRCA genes, and I think it was 1994, and then the ability to subsequently test for it is really opened the window to change the outcomes from these patients. Now, prior to the development of the PARP inhibitors, we know this BRCA gene is a defect in their tumor suppressor gene. So they were much more at risk of not being able to handle DNA defects and developing tumors. Ovarian and breast were the most characteristic hallmarks. 
and that's from this homologous DNA repair. What we saw when we were able to then test for the patients and identify them as BRCA, I think looking at the other part of pharmacology was developing these PARP inhibitors or the inability to repair the DNA from the double single-strand hits that can happen. And so I think the beauty was in trying to match the two of these in combination with chemotherapy. And so these PARP inhibitors first rolled out in the ovarian market and shown benefit in those disease, again, as a single agent in opposition to chemotherapy in these patients who've had prior chemotherapy and was able to demonstrate a benefit. And so now we've seen in the breast cancer arena, I think one thing, not all PARP inhibitors are the same. The Olympiad trial that was presented at ASCO, I think, was really the first strong indication in breast cancer that are BRCA1 and 2 mutants that this PARP inhibitor against a selection of chemotherapy demonstrated a benefit. So I think, again, you know, when we take that these patients are born with a genetic inability for this tumor suppressor gene, and we're giving them a tablet therapy as opposed to chemotherapy for their cancers and seeing, you know, the ability to control their disease. I think what we also learned from that trial is who's going to be best suited. And so, you know, I think it was the platinum naive and the earlier stage patients on and so I think that positive trial at met its endpoint is going to be practice changing for patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutations with metastatic breast cancer. I think we're going to see that paradigm shift as we've seen in the hormone positive with the addition of the CDK46 to first line is moving the PARP inhibitors for the metastatic breast cancer patients as a first line therapy. And again, they're pushing chemotherapy and that envelope further down the road. I think the other part is it's such an exciting discovery that, you know, it opens the door for dual or doublet therapy in terms of, again, staying away from chemo, looking at combinations with immunologic agents. And I think, you know, it's real exciting. Chemotherapy is still a bread and butter of breast cancer, but I think we're pushing that envelope of chemo further and further back and learning to embrace, you know, science that's really brought to fruition these novel combinations and drugs. And I think the quality of life these patients are experiencing has been phenomenal with these newer agents. We talked about, though, that oral agents don't necessarily mean no toxicity. And we have been hearing now from the gynecologic oncologists who've been using PARP inhibitors for ovarian cancer for a while about the problems that patients get in. And it seems like it's a little bit different, as you were saying, with the different drugs. But Olaparib, which is the drug that was used in that big trial that was presented at ASCO, what we've heard about there has been anemia and GI problems. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the sort of clinical spectrum of toxicity with these agents? Yeah, and I think it's always a challenge when we're thinking about an oral agent as compared to chemotherapy. And then the oral agents, I think anemia, certainly with the PARP inhibitors, has been an issue. I think anemia linked with fatigue. I think, again, it's one of those big impacts on activities of daily living when these patients are taking a tablet. And here we think we're kind of giving them a leash on life outside of the clinic, and but we still have to monitor for things like anemia. We, patients are seen as thinia, fatigue. They do see the GI toxicity with nausea 
nausea and some diarrhea. And so, you know, there's still therapies that require more hands-on monitoring. But from a patient standpoint, I think, again, they think of a tablet, just infinitely different than chemotherapy. But some patients, you know, are intolerant, and it does lead to discontinuations. Despite the greatest science behind these agents, some patients still can't tolerate them due to some of these toxicities. Another agent that's not approved as a PARP inhibitor but has been looked at is viliparib. And one of the things about that is that there's been an interest in the possibility of combining a PARP inhibitor with chemotherapy. It kind of makes sense. In the trial you talked about, it was used alone. But it seems like most of these agents you can't add to chemotherapy, but viliparib you can. What do we know about that? So I think, you know, it's always challenging, and I think it goes back to really making sure each of the agents as a single agent may be well tolerated, but when we combine things, you know, it changes the dynamics of some of the side effect profiles. And so the phase one trials are always designed to just reiterate that something is combinable that you would otherwise think not. Viliparib, I think, you know, from the iSpy trials did show it could combine with chemotherapy and was an advantage in the neoadjuvant setting and could be delivered. And I think in the second component is then what kind of chemotherapy backbone is it a platinum backbone. And so viliparib has moved from the I-SPY into a neoadjuvant setting and moving forward to looking at that and the advantages that may have. Right now, of course, there's not an approval for using PARP inhibitors in breast cancer, but there are three agents that are approved. Are there any situations where you would like to try, based on the data that you saw there, where you would actually like to use, outside of a trial setting, one of these PARP inhibitors, and what kind of situation and which agent? I would say I'd go, you know, where the trial with Olympiad and Olipirib would be. And I do think for a first-line metastatic BRCA patient, I would like to put a PARP inhibitor in that patient first. I think unless that patient is, again, one of these patients that has a very symptomatic high tumor burden load that I really feel that I need the response rate-driven choice and selection of agents with chemotherapy, I think, you know, trying to get a patient on the PARP and then watching those patients stay with controlled disease on an oral agent that gives them such a quality of life outside of our office would be the first and foremost choice for a patient. And then, you know, with the hope that second line, I'll be able to find a trial for that patient and continuing to insert novel approaches to their disease and always still keeping my deck of card of chemotherapy agents as well. But, you know, I try to always look at inserting and integrating novel approaches to their therapy and keeping the chemotherapy at bay as long as I can. Which PARP inhibitor would you use? As I mentioned, there are three now approved. The one that was reported at ASCO is Olaparib. Is that the one you would use in practice? I would use Olaparib. And also another question this trial brings out is the issue of who should have BRCA germline testing. Roughly what percent overall of breast cancer patients with BRCA germline mutations and who do you think should be tested? I mean, in the past, we were kind of looking for helping the family. Now we're looking at the patient. So I have a pretty robust practice of approaching genetic testing with patients. 
And so I look at the NCCN guidelines in terms of we look at different histologies, so triple negative under the age of 60 or families that have two first-degree relatives in terms of pulling those guidelines. I talk about genetic testing with almost every patient that meets one of the NCCN guidelines, both for the BRCA, but I think more importantly for the BRCA patients, even in the metastatic setting, I have patients that say, well, you know, I already have disease. And I said, well, now this may lead to a clinical trial or soon, hopefully, an approved agent for you, in addition to helping family members or offspring avoid having the disease getting into a screening process program. And so I do mention this with patients. I think the other part is I do approach the more robust panels. So not only limiting it to the BRCA1 and 2, but looking for the PAL-B2, the RAD51, the ATM, you know, trying again to define what drove that cancer. Now there we don't have as much data in terms of monitoring the patients or recommendations for the PAL-B2. A lot is based on the recommendations for BRCA in terms of the prophylactic mastectomies. And I do talk with patients about the limitations we have and long-term data of changing their disease. But it's, again, with the hope that there are additional clinical trials that are going to be made available for these patients based on those mutations drives the genetic testing in my practice. So you referred to triple negative breast cancer a few times. and Maybe we can just start out with the way you approach patients who have triple negative metastatic disease. A lot of these patients have had prior adjuvant treatment with an anthracycline and taxane and then they develop disease recurrence. How do you think through the management of those patients? I know your first hope is to get the patient on a trial, but sort of outside a trial setting, how do you think through the sequence of therapies? You know, I look at what the patient received in an adjuvant setting, whether it was anthracycline, taxane, taxane, taxane platinum that I've utilized in some patients or in a neoadjuvant fashion. And then I look at how long or short their disease-free interval has been. For a short disease-free interval, less than 12 months, which is frequent for these triple negative patients, I really do like arubilin in that patient population, and I have seen a lot of activity. I think they have a lot of science behind arubilin in the triple negative population and some small subgroup analysis from some of their other trials. I think I had done some work in a neoadjuvant setting trying to look at arubilin for patients with residual disease, and actually the group that really benefited that had a neoadjuvant therapy of physician's choice and had residual disease, the triple negative population benefited from six cycles of arubilin post-surgery following neoadjuvant therapy. They have great data in terms of the shifting of the epithelial to mesenchymal transition as the science behind the rationale of arubilin and triple negative population. But I have found it actually to be quite active in that triple negative population. And so for those short relapses, I think that's my to-go-to drug for patients. Could I just ask you before you go into other things, can you talk a little bit about your vision of how aribulin actually works and what kinds of toxicity tolerability issues you see with it? So aribolin works a little bit different than the traditional taxane venorelbine. It works at the ends of the microtubulin complex of actually allowing these aggregates of the tubulin molecules to form. It kind of stops that. And 
kind of causes this disarray where they're not able to build onto this tubulin complex, so very different from inhibiting the mitotic complex as the taxanes do. It does, though, have a feature, I think, in commonality with the taxanes in terms of it can, with exposure, result in neuropathy. And most of these patients have had per the FDA guidelines, a prior taxane. And so aribulin following a previous exposure to a taxane with cumulative doses does end up with some neurotoxicity. The other big issue, I think, is that it is myelosuppressive. And so that's the two issues that I see in the patients in terms of trying to manage it. I am able to manage the myelosuppression. It is the one time that I may consider growth factor and an advanced patient with breast cancer after the day eight dosing to keep patients able after dose modification. Some patients just have a challenge with that. They're few and far. Most of them I'm able to get with dose modifications. And then the peripheral neuropathy, you know, I utilize all the interventions, but, you know, I do get to a point where I'm weighing the risks and benefits for those patients in neuropathy could potentially cumulatively result in us terminating that drug.